Weddings are very important days. Families and, and friends often plan their vacations around weddings. That, that's the time that comes a culmination of months worth of preparation that has been spent planning for the wedding day. Selection after selection is required for that day. There's decision after decision to be made. Everything from the, the color of flower petals to the, the songs that will be played during the receptions, all these things have to be addressed. All of these things have to be planned. There's the creation of the invitation for the guests, and that list requires multiple iterations. Hair and makeup consumes hours and hours. Usually there's at least one person whose whole job that day is just to make sure everyone else is in the right place at the right time so that things will go as planned. A a wedding does not just happen. A A wedding is an event that, that requires a lot of preparation. It, it's odd then when you think about how much preparation is put into this event that, that the ceremony actually passes in a few short minutes. I, I know I hardly remember the actual wedding ceremony from my own wedding. Much of the preparation stands out in my mind. I remember standing outside the auditorium waiting to, for the time to enter at the beginning of the ceremony and then it's pretty much a mental blur until later on in the reception. My, my brain just kind of doesn't record any of, of the actual ceremony. For, for me personally, what sticks on my mind is just this overwhelming feeling of joy. It, it's as if the, the joy of the moment overrode the ability to lock in on any specific memory. And, and my mental recording device didn't, didn't work. Now, my experience might be different than yours. But I'm sure we've all experienced wedding days to some extent. Surely you've attended a wedding of friends and family. Most likely you've been in a wedding or participated in a wedding in some degree. Many of us have experienced our own wedding days. We're we're all familiar with the joy of weddings. Well, this morning we are going to share in the joy of another wedding. The joy of that day when it comes around. We're returning to our series through the Song of Solomon this morning. My, my plan is to, to set this series aside after this morning until we finish the holiday season. But before we do that, we're going to join our young couple on their wedding day. The, the Song of Solomon, as you know, if you've been here the previous three Sundays as we've been working through this, this series, it, it's not a drama. Rather, this is an extended song. It's a choral arrangement, if you will. The song focuses on the idea of perfect love. Ideal love is being sung about, and it's being sung about with three different voices. You have the beloved, the female solo part, sung by a young lady, or at least a lady that's singing as a young lady, recording the thoughts of this young woman in love. You, you have the lover, the male solo voice. It's, it's the man who's infatuated and deeply in love and growing in love for this young woman. He sings of his love for the beloved. And, and then there's a chorus. It's a, a group of, of ladies singing the part, and, and they have the part of, of friends to the, the beloved. They, they are singing their support for the love of this young couple specifically because it's their good friend who's the beloved. The, the song like all music, is designed to, to give voice to emotional ideas. 
We, we, we don't have a story unfolding here in the song. What we have is, is a progression of emotions as the young couple's love develops. It, it's helpful to think of the song really as love poetry set to music. And like all poetry, it uses dense word pictures. Word pictures that are designed to, to communicate images to our mind that then prompt emotional responses. Our goal in this series as we work through the Song of Solomon is that we will understand the word pictures so that we can understand the emotions that are to be provoked by those word pictures and then from that see the emotions that are to be associated with ideal love. It's a little bit of work because the word pictures come from ancient Israel. They're, they're not the same pictures we'd use. We have to understand the picture first. Then we can understand the emotion, and that motion then points us to ideal love. So far, we've seen this young couple find the time to be alone together, and we felt their desire grow for one another, and we felt their desire becoming increasingly fervent. We, we've also observed their dedication to maintaining purity in their love. They have not allowed an intimate physical relationship to occur. They, they're saving themselves and, and their increasing passion. They're saving it for when they can rightly express it within the covenant relationship of marriage. Last week, the, the beloved sang of, of her desire for her lover and how that desire was approaching an unbearable level. We ended the, the main section, or the second main section, the, the song really is split in three main sections, like three choral sections, that we ended the second main section with the exact same warning as we ended the first section. A, a warning to safeguard love's purity by, by constraining its growth until the proper time. Before we move into our text this morning, I, I want to remind us that, that we are not looking only for the lessons that the song contains about ideal human love. We, we do look for that. We want to understand what teaches us about the, the human aspect of, of love and how it's designed to work in God's universe. But we're also looking for how ideal human love illustrates the perfect love of our Savior. While the song focuses on the human level of pure love, the, the fact that it's preserved for us in inspired scripture, that, that fact assures us that the song has something to teach us about the spiritual level of God's love as well. We're at the point in the song where both the beloved and the lover, the, the woman and the man, we're at the point where they yearn to commit themselves to one another and, and to give themselves fully, physically, intimately to each other. With, with such passionate desire building, it is fitting that, that we arrive at their wedding day. Let's go ahead and read the short text that, that we'll consider this morning. We're only looking at verses 6 through 11 of chapter 3. Verse 6 of chapter 3. What if this coming up from the wilderness, like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all scented powers of the merchant? Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon, sixty mighty men around it, all of the mighty men of Israel. All of them are welders of the sword, expert in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. 
King Solomon has made for himself a sedan chair from the timber of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, and its seat of purple fabric, with its interior lovingly fitted out by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and gaze on King Solomon with the crown which, with which his mother has crowned him on, his, on the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart. The wedding day has finally arrived for the couple. And, and while that is the case for this couple, it's not exactly like the weddings of our day. At the same time, it's not that much different. There, there's a lot of parallels between this wedding day that we're just reading of and our day. Much like today, the wedding is involved in, with a lot of pomp. It's the pomp that's described in, in the verses that, that often leads here to the idea that Solomon is the young lover in this song. After all, King Solomon's name is mentioned multiple times. But as I said in, in the very first week of this series, the, the view that Solomon is the lover leads to a lot of confusion as we try to fit the details that we read about in the song of the lover into things we know of Solomon's life. There's a lot of confusion because they don't really fit. It's hard to do that when, for example, Solomon was never a shepherd boy. It's much easier to recognize that what's going on here, the song does what many good songs do. The songs use cultural icons and bring them in to invoke images. It's not at all unusual when we hear about songs to, to hear the names of famous people mentioned in the songs. The, the writer and the, the singer, they, they use these well-known things uh, uh, about these people and, and let that communicate ideas that, that then generate specific emotions. We should also recognize that all weddings are filled with a lot of pageantry. Think, think about royal weddings that you've seen televised. We've had several now and, and we've seen them on, on television. Think about those weddings, and now also at the same time, I know I'm asking a lot to hold two things in your mind at once, but I think you're up to it today. Think about the royal wedding, and now think about weddings you've attended. Compare those two. The, the two are not that much different when it comes to the pageantry. Sure, the, the royal dresses are much more elaborate that you've seen. They're, the, the orchestra is much larger. The, the guest list is ritzier in the royal wedding than, than the weddings that you've likely attended, unless there's somebody here that has royal blood that I'm not aware of. There, there probably is a different level in, in expense, for example, of the dresses. Still, the royal bride and every bride you've ever seen wears a dress that's readily identifiable as a wedding dress. They're not that much different. So we can invoke the image of a wedding by using words like the bride enters as a queen and approaches her waiting prince. When we hear that, we recognize that we're indicating that the wedding has this regal look, the, the look that, that surrounds a royal event without actually meaning that the bride and the groom are literal royalty. As we look at our verses, we, we can think of a royal, a royal wedding without insisting that the lover and the beloved are, are King Solomon and, and one of his brides. Rather, we can understand that on the wedding day, every groom is somewhat like a King Solomon. 
placing the, the wedding imagery in, in words that are familiar with our day and age, an easy way to think of verse 6 would be, this is the first glimpse. The first glimpse. The, the first glimpse of the bride, especially on her wedding day in, in our day, is, is a big deal. Generally, the, the first glimpse of the bride is a breathtaking sight. In, in church here, a lot of times those doors are closed and then they're thrown open, the bride appears. Chances are the bride will be more beautiful on her wedding day than any other day of her life. For, for most women, the, the wedding day is the only day when others fuss over her entire preparation. Someone does her hair. Someone does her makeup. Someone helps her put on her dress. She is fluffed and buffed to near perfection. And the moment she is spotted, everyone present rises to their feet, signifying the honor that's bestowed upon her as the arriving bride approaching the marriage altar. Of course, I know it's not uncommon for guests to also be sneaking a few glances at at the, the groom waiting for the bride, wanting to observe his reaction when he spots his bride. We, we anticipate that his breath might be taken away. More, more than one groom has been caught standing down front here with a very silly grin just pasted on their face. We, we anticipate that, that he will be enraptured at, at the sight of his bride coming down the aisle. This is somewhat the reaction that, that's being sung about in verse 6. There, there is uncertainty... Who is the singer in these verses? But, but I agree with the translators and commentators who suggest that this entire section we're looking at this morning is sung by the chorus of friends. There, there's nothing in these verses that we're looking at this morning that take us inside the minds of the, the, the beloved or the lover. Other sections, we've heard their thoughts. We, we've heard them their, their ideas. There's nothing in these that take us inside their minds. Rather, this section is presented as, as several outside observations. And, and the focus is on the pageantry of the event. The, these verses read like the observation of close friends. So I believe it's the chorus singing their observations. The, the first glimpse we have of the wedding day is of the approaching wedding party. Now, now we really don't know anything about the customs of, of weddings in Solomon's day. We know that our Lord in Matthew 25 in his parable of the wise and foolish virgins, he re- refers to the custom of, of the groom coming for his bride on, on the wedding day. But we also recognize our Lord's parable takes place several centuries after Solomon's day. So, so it wouldn't be surprising to learn that customs have, have changed over the centuries. For that matter, we won't even be surprised if we learn that customs varied from village to village. So we, we don't really know what is happening, but, but the image of the groom approaching with an entourage that, that fits the information contained in the verse. The groom is playing the role that now we would think of the, the bride as being the one who approaches and in, in, in we are stunned by, by his, his appearance. Uh, another possible interpretation is that the groom sends his attendants. He's not part of the entourage. He sends his attendants with an empty couch to to collect his bride and to bring her back to his house, which will be the location of the wedding. Personally, 
That's the picture I think fits best, at least in my mind. In either case, though, the bride and her friends, they're waiting for the entourage to arrive on the wedding day. And in the distance, they see what looks like columns of smoke. Most likely, that's just poetic reference to the dust that's being kicked up by a number of people approaching. It's clear that our lover has sent many attendants to collect his bride. And the bleak landscape of, of the, the region there, it creates a backdrop against which the, the splendor of the entourage forms a, a stunning contrast. Now, there is no way at a distance that the girls observing the approaching group could actually smell the perfume and the scented powders of the men. Yet, yet poetry doesn't always have to match up to literal reality. There, there's some license that you have with poetry. The, the obvious splendor of, of these approaching men, that, that would be sufficient for the, the girls to, to anticipate that the groom has spared no expense in the preparation for this day. Here comes his great men, and they are prepared for the wedding. That means they will be perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. They'll have all the scented powders of the merchants. They will have the most extravagant oils and powders available to prepare them for this event. Having observed the approaching entourage, the course turns their attention to these attendants in verses 7 and 8. One of the things that, that makes me personally think that the groom is not part of the entourage is that it is the groom's attendants that, that grab the attention of the, the chorus at this point. The, the ones he sent to collect the, the bride, there's a lot of details given about the attendants, but the groom's appearance is never mentioned. I, I would expect that if he was part of the, the, the entourage, he would be the focal point. The, the, the attendants would fade into the background as the groom would be the one who draws the attention of the chorus. But their attention's on the attendants. The, the picture of the song it gives us here is that of a massive entourage. Verse 6 asks the question, who or, or what? Um, in Hebrew, it could be either way. Who approaches? What approaches? Well, verse 7 answers. What approaches is 60 mighty men bringing this traveling couch of Solomon. Again, I, I see Solomon as a poetic symbol. On, on the wedding day, every groom is a Solomon. They, they see the, the entourage approaching. And in the center is Solomon's couch. The, the word used would indicate a, a portable lounging bed. With or without the groom present. I, I believe that this couch is intended to transport the bride to the groom's house. The, the site where the, the actual wedding will be held. The couch is surrounded by the attendants. And the attendants capture the attention of our young ladies as they look at them. Now, over the years, I have no idea how many conversations I've heard between my wife and my daughter, and now sometimes my daughter-in-law is included as well. I don't know how many times I've heard conversations that, that go into great detail about the bridesmaids' dresses. I'm always amazed how many details can be in a dress. In our weddings, the bridesmaids enter and they, they are the ones who provide the regal atmosphere of the ceremony. They're, and the dresses that they wear, that, these dresses, they're a key component to, to setting the atmosphere. 
That's why there's so many discussions around their details. How regal is the atmosphere? Well, in Solomon's day, the male attendants served that role. The attendants are equally stunning. They, they're the very picture of, of mighty men. They are all carrying their swords. They're all clearly competent with their swords. They, they jointly present this mighty force. After all, if these are the men who are responsible for conveying the bride, the one who is most precious to the groom, the groom that they're committed to as attendants, these men will do all they can to ensure that she arrives safely. Even today, it is not uncommon in some cultures for men to wear swords at a wedding. Historically, a wedding was a place where jewelry and fine clothes were common gifts. The, the joy of the occasion would certainly be marred, if not destroyed, if thieves attacked and made off with these expensive gifts. So part of the groom's attendant's role in history was to provide protection. And these ideas are still reflected by the presence of ceremonial swords. In our text, with these mighty attendants here surrounding the bride, her safety is secure. The, the groom has sent them to symbolically assure his beloved that with him she is safe. She will be forever safe with him. The choir sings of their joy over these observations. The coming of the groom's entourage is real and splendid, as well as extremely powerful. From the attendants, the, the choir moves on with the song to sing of the preparation that's been made. The preparation in verses 9 and 10. The, the center of the preparation is the couch. The, the fact that it's called King Solomon's couch or the groom's couch, uh, again, does not mean that he's the one riding in it. The word likely describes a, a, covering, a covered lounging couch that, that's carried on the shoulders of some of the attendants. If you happen to know the word palanquin, or palanquin, I think is how it's pronounced, palanquin, that's the technical term in the East for this type of a, a couch. That's probably what's being described. You can think maybe of like a daybed with a, a cover over and, and poles that the men would carry it from, a palanquin. Uh, again, the choir is impressed. If they see this elaborate preparation of the groom, no expense has been spared in this palanquin. The, the wood is of the finest timber available. It's special order from Lebanon. Lebanon is famous for its timber. There are posts of silver. There, there's a back support of gold. The, the cushions are, are covered in fine purple fabric. Everything about this couch is extravagant. This is an expensive piece of work, all prepared by the lover to give his bride a ride equal to his extravagant love for her. Significantly, the, the groom did not outfit the couch on his own. The groom was a wise man. He enlisted the, the help of the beloved's friends, the, the daughters of Jerusalem, our, our choir. He enlisted their help because they knew exactly what she would like. They added their special tender touches to the lounging couch. And by doing so, they showed their approval of the wedding. They showed their support for the relationship. They, they showed their, their joy in progressing to the wedding day. Again, I've seen 
similar things many times. If the day before this auditorium is being prepared for a wedding, it's the bride and her bridesmaids frequently are here. As the bridesmaids, her friends come and, and add their joy and their support to the preparation for the day. These are our singers, the friends of the bride, and they're singing of the joy that they have seen the couch that they help prepare arrive to take their good friend to her wedding. And that brings us to the final verse. The entourage with the couch arrives at the beloved's house. So the, the choir of her friends sing final words expressing the joy, the simple joy. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and gaze on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart. This is a day of joy. Zion throughout the Old Testament is another name for Jerusalem. You, you probably know that. Several scholars argue that the daughters of Jerusalem and the daughters of Zion are, are just the same. They're, they're parallel phrases. And, and from this, they, they conclude then that the beloved has been singing since she is the one who always addresses her friends. That it's the, the female soloist singing these words rather than the choir. I actually think that the daughters of Zion... And the daughters of Jerusalem are not identical. Even though Zion and Jerusalem are parallel names, I, I believe that the daughters of Zion refer to our chorus girls, the, the, the beloved's female friends, the ones who are singing as, as the chorus in our song, that third voice throughout this song that, that comes in at times. They're the observer's voice. They're, they are young women of Jerusalem, but they are not all the young women of Jerusalem. Specifically, I, I see the daughters of Jerusalem in this last verse here turning their voices to the city girls, tell, calling on the rest of the, the, the girls in the city who are not the immediate friends, they're not part of the bridal party, they're not that inner circle, calling for them to come out now and join the wedding party. Join up. In other words, they're, they're inviting the young women of the city to come and join in the festivities that are about to begin. The groom's entourage has arrived. They're announcing that it's now time for the, the wedding. This time has finally come. Come join as the bride will climb into this couch and we will all parade our way back to the groom's house. Again, we have to guess somewhat as to the customs that, that would occur from this point forward. The, the closest we have is our Lord's parallel from, or parable rather, from Matthew 25. But it would seem, as I said, the, the bride, she's going to climb into the palaquin and, and be carried by the attendants, surrounded by them, all back to the groom's house. Now the, the chorus, the bride's attendants, the chorus, they will join the caravan. They will also mix in here. And they're calling out as they go to all the women of the city to, to come and join as we head for the wedding ceremony. It is a time of great parade, joyful parade. If the groom happened to be part of this arriving group, then the invite is to come out and see him right now. But if he's waiting for the entourage to return, then, then this invite is for them to come and join this parade as we go to his house so you can see how he is prepared for the day. In either case, this is his wedding day. He is prepared for the occasion with a crown that his mother has given him. Again, this suggests... He's not really King Solomon because King Solomon was not crowned by his mother. He's crowned by the high priest. 
This is a ceremonial crown of, of joy, a crown symbolizing his mother's joyful celebration of the day. The, the song of the choir ends with words of joy. Everything sung in these verses have a joyful sound. The groom's mother, we're told, has displayed her joy by giving a crown. We assume the bride is joyful as she sees the palanquin uh, arrive and, and able to climb in. And the final observation is that the groom on this day has gladness of heart. This is a day of great joy. This is a day of great joy. At this point, we've completed our journey through our text. But as with previous weeks in this series, where we're not finished. We're not finished until we understand the lesson. To understand the lesson from today, we need to place it into the larger context of the song. We need to remember what's happened to bring us to this point. As I said, the song doesn't contain a story, but it does have a progression. The progression that led to this day, this, this day of joy, this, this wedding day. We need to understand all of it and how this fits in. Part of what we are to understand as we think back through that progression, part of what is contributing to the joy of this day is the fact that the beloved and the lover have maintained their sexual purity. They, they've constrained their desire for intimacy. They, they've waited for this day because this is the day that they will form a lasting covenant commitment to one another. But the details that we're sung about today were just the initial steps in the formation of the covenant. That the songs ends with joy as the beloved heads off to her lover's house to become his wife. We, we will not actually hear the words of the wedding ceremony itself. Somewhat like my lack of memories over the details of my own wedding, the, the ceremony of the beloved and the lover are blurred out. What is important is that on this day, they form a covenant with one another, a lasting binding covenant, and their joy is built within that context. They commit to one another as a husband and wife. Joy comes from celebrating that they have done all this in, in proper order in the manner that builds and maintains ideal love. So it's by recognizing how all this fits together that, that we can understand the lesson from our text this morning. The lesson is that joy reaches its fullest within covenant commitment. Joy reaches its fullest within covenant commitment. That's the lesson that we should understand this morning. At the human level, we, we need to recognize that, once again, this is a message that, that warns us against grabbing instant sexual gratification as our world offers through its deceitful message. Our, our world tells us that's the, the way to find quick joy. But the world's deceitful message is one that, that robs us of joy rather than delivering the joy as promised. We, we will not find joy in its fullest through multiple sexual partners. We will not find joy in its fullest through premarital intimacy. We will not find joy through any of the false offerings of our culture. We will find joy only in its fullest when intimacy is placed within the context God designed, the, the context of a covenant commitment. Like the beloved and the lover, 
we are to constrain intimacy until marriage in order to have joy reach its fullest. Now, I'm not naive. I, I, I have little doubt that in a room this size with this many people, there are some for whom the ideal is lost. Casual sex is, is simply too much a part of our culture to expect that none of us have fallen t- to the lie that we're regularly offered. In, in that case, I'm sure that you live with a, a level of sadness be, because what's been lost cannot be regained. Uh, I do want to encourage you, though. I, I want to encourage you. We have a gracious, loving God. A God who forgives our failures over and over again. He, he's also a God who repeatedly transforms sorrow into joy. That's our God. He, he creates gladness out of disaster. So, we are able to confess our failures to God. And we can begin living our life from now on according to God's pattern, and we can experience great joy through his forgiveness. In fact, I want all of us to, to think about this lesson again. Joy reaches its fullest within covenant commitment. This is true on the human level when it comes to sexual intimacy. This is also true on the spiritual level. Joy reaches its fullest when we are in a covenant relationship with God. Sin ruptured our, our, co- our relationship with God. Scripture tells us that from Genesis chapter 3 onward, that sin ruptured the relationship we had with, with God. Sin from the moment entered the garden, it left us estranged from God. Yet God sent his son, his glorious son, What we celebrate as the Christmas story, God sent his son to deal with our estrangement. Jesus lived his sinless life. Then he willingly gave that life to pay the penalty for our sin. When when we accept Jesus as our our Savior, when we place our faith in him, accept that he died in our place and did what we cannot do through any effort of our own, Our sin is not only forgiven, the scripture tells us we enter into a covenant relationship with God. A new covenant. We are no longer estranged from God. We're in relationship with him. This relationship is our joy. It's our eternal joy. We are now his children, assured of eternity in his presence. Now, we are much like this bride. Today, we are much like this bride. We are awaiting the arrival of our groom. We, we know that he's coming. We know that he is coming and that when he comes, he will be glorious. The second coming of our Lord and Savior will not be like the first. He will be in full glory. We also know from Colossians chapter 1, 22, that, that when he comes, regardless of our many failures, when he comes, we those who have faith in Jesus Christ will be presented to God the Father as holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That is because our groom makes all things new. Our groom makes all things pure. He does that through the new covenant that he formed through his blood. It's within this covenant 
the new covenant, that we experience the perfect love of our Savior, that is where our fullest joy comes. Joy reaches its fullest within covenant commitment. We all can experience that through faith in Jesus Christ. As we conclude our sermon this morning, let's take a few minutes and review the lessons we've learned from the song. As I said, we're going to set the song aside now for the remainder of the holiday season, and we'll pick up in January again. Uh, probably, I, I think my plan is the third week of January, unless something else changes. So we'll set it aside, but we've learned four lessons now, so let's review those. Lesson number one, love is worth pursuing as a God-given gift. Lesson number two, we must constrain new love until it can rightly grow. Lesson number three, we must intentionally safeguard love's purity as passion increases. Those were the previous lessons that we saw in the previous weeks. And then today we had our fourth lesson. Joy reaches its fullest within covenant commitment. That's true at the human level. Joy reaches its fullest within the covenant commitment of marriage. At the spiritual level, joy reaches its fullest within the new covenant, the covenant commitment that we have through faith with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us all great joy today. That we would all experience the joy of our salvation that comes in Christ. And may we understand more fully that through faith in Christ, we are in a covenant relationship with you. And may we rejoice in that anew. Father, as we consider the song today, I pray that you would help us all to focus on living in a manner that is contrary to our culture, that, that uses intimacy in the way that you've designed it to be used within the covenant commitment of marriage. And may we learn from this picture what ideal love truly is. And may we rejoice as we see how that points us to our Lord and Savior, the one who has displayed perfect love. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.